welcome to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast with your hosts Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. The ultimate insider's guide from signing day to the national championship game and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast. And now pleased to welcome back to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast, Gary Danielson, lead analyst for the SEC on CBS. Gary, I want to get started going back to a moment from Georgia and Tennessee, a moment that you pointed out on the broadcast that I thought was very interesting. Kirby Smart on the sideline speaking to quarterback Jake Eason, uh, giving him, you know, you said it could have been a couple different messages, but as Jacob Eason entered that game, uh, the moment that he had with his coach, what do you think was going on? Well, it's obviously speculation, but, um, you know, I've been in those situations before and, you know, quarterback's a tough spot. Uh, you know, not only are, are you, uh, expected to play at the highest level, you're also expected to lead at the highest level. And in the midst of this, there's an understanding that only one quarterback plays at a time. Coaches don't like flopping quarterbacks around because your team doesn't like uh, inserting quarterbacks in and out of a game like, say, a running back or a different linebacker or receivers. So it becomes a very unique position to the players that are involved in that school. Um, In this case, Jacob Eason and Jake Fromm, uh, two highly recruited, um, potentially franchise college quarterbacks are at the same spot. Um, They're one year apart. Uh, Jacob Eason was a five-star player two years ago. Jake Fromm is a five-star quarterback this year, committed to Alabama, now comes to Georgia. And I speculated that there might have been a plan. The plan might have been that we know Jacob Eason is only going to play for three years in, in his game plan and probably turn pro because of his pro potential. And Jake Fromm, here's your game plan at Georgia. This will make you better. You'll get the red shirt. We'll keep you and set you aside as a a disaster quarterback, say say we get into that situation. But Kirby tells Jake Fromm, I've been through this with J.J. McCarron, and uh, be ready, but probably won't need you unless it's something disaster, disaster strikes, and everything goes out the window. And in modern college football, it's hard to hold on to the other guy. And I think that was what was going on at the sideline at that point in that game. Do you think that – how do you see that quarterback position uh, playing out here over the next couple of weeks? Do you think sure. Eason will have an opportunity to work his way back onto uh, the first string? No one knows. And that's really the, 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 the dilemma as, as a player. Um, I did an interview for, I, I think, the Athens Banner about this subject. And uh, my advice to Jacob Eason was that, number one, you owe your teammates. You're on a team. You elected to be part of a team. You owe your teammates um, your full effort for this 2017 year as long as you're putting on that Georgia uniform every day. Uh, Number two is you owe yourself loyalty to yourself that you seek out the career path that's going to best help you. And um, that's a tough decision all the time. What, what should I do? Should I, should I hang here and trust that I can beat him out? I have a lot of confidence in myself, but it is a, subject, it is a 
subjective decision. Uh, wouldn't you agree at quarterback? I mean, it's not like the two guys sure. race or dive into a pool and the fastest guy swims. It's it's subjective. Decision-making. So, that was that was one thing Kirby Smart mentioned this week is it's a decision-making grade, which happens throughout the entire weekend on weekends. Yeah, if you believe that, then then you have to you have to go for that. Or do you think like, listen, I I know it's a decision making thing, but is Jake is doing well enough, and the team is winning well enough that I might never get my spot, and uh, maybe I need to go somewhere else, and because only one guy could play, and tip my hat and say, Coach, I understand you think um, he was better than me. I don't agree. Uh, so I'm going to go somewhere else like Joe Flacco did. Okay. When he transferred from Pittsburgh to Delaware and Joe Flacco's doing pretty well. Okay. And, and so, um, or in a, in a different way of looking at it, Tom Brady's doing pretty well, even though 32 NFL coaches five times didn't think he was good enough. So people's opinion of you should not totally shape your plan for your career. But I was strongly advising him to not put yourself into a position where you're pouting or you're not getting ready and something does turn your way and you're not ready to represent yourself and your teammates and your family's name in the best possible light. What will you feel about your career if you're pouting, and it's two games from now, and uh, Jake Fromm gets injured, and you're not ready to play. So whatever your path you choose, you have to be loyal to that path in real time. But it's not an easy decision, and Kirby's going to have to white walk a tightrope because I think it's going to be pretty hard. You know, this is just from the outside. Back when I played in the 70s, you did not transfer. It just didn't happen. But nowadays it's a different world, and if you're one of those highly recruited players where you're deciding between USC, Alabama, and Georgia, and you go to this place and the Georgia team has recruited another guy, then you have to decide what to do and, and, and what's your future path. And the reason Kirby is so delicately tiptoeing through this, we don't know his true thoughts. And he's not going to let his true thoughts out to us. He may tell that to Jake and Jacob, but he's not going to tell them to us. And um, I suspect that he's not going to ever let the other quarterback know that he's made a decision full time that I'm going with this guy, the other guy. And because he risks, because of the situation at Georgia, there's only two scholarship quarterbacks on campus. And um, I think he has to at least get through this year. On the other side of the ball, forty-one yeah. nothing. Not, yeah. not another, not another feel-good weekend for Tennessee. So I, I'm going to stop asking you what's wrong with Tennessee. I'm going to take this a different way. Um, look, the rest of their schedule, they're going to lose to Alabama. But they, I'm going to read you their other games: South Carolina, right. Kentucky, Southern Miss, Missouri, Vanderbilt, and a bad LSU team. Can they go five and one with that with the rest of those those other six games and and somehow Butch Jones a, gets off this option? Cha- it'll be a challenge for them. Um, I don't you know I don't know if I quite agree. It's a bad LSU team. It's um, 
you know, they caught a unique game. Uh, I, you know, Alabama wasn't quite up for Colorado State, but they had a little bit too much talent. Uh, LSU, I thought, tried to get through a game yeah. by resting a couple of star players, and they're pretty thin in the offense and the defensive line, and we can discuss why about that. And there's, I think there's a lot of angles to that. A, a couple of good articles just recently have been written about that, but I, I think it goes even a little further th- than that. But I thought they thought they could get through the Troy game and get a healthy uh, guys for the final run of the uh, SEC schedule and um they got caught and it and it burnt them i'd be shocked if lsu doesn't come back and play their best game this week i don't know if that game is good enough but i'd be shocked if they don't and tennessee is middle of the road talented but they're struggling at quarterback let's just be honest here i mean they're they are trying to find ways so that their quarterback doesn't beat them and in this conference, it's hard to play, you know, dribbling to your left all the time to avoid, uh, you know, your right hand that you don't have confidence in. And especially if your right hand is the quarterback position. And uh, right now it's not working out well for them. I don't put it all on the quarterback's head, but it, it sure seems like their coaching staff is having uh, management trouble figuring out how to get their receivers and their quarterback and their passing game to get off from ground zero. Well, is it, well it, go ahead, Barton. I mean, I, I guess with with. But were you wanting me to get to Georgia, or did you? That, that's Tennessee number one. I'm sorry. If you, no, no, you wanna, no. I mean, no, Tennessee is Tennessee. I don't know about saving jobs. I don't get into that kind sure. of stuff. I, obviously, he's on the hot seat. I mean, when you listen, it's no different than playing starting quarterback in the NFL, okay, or or, or any big time job. When you accept a job for three, four, five million dollars a year, you're taking that job because they're hiring you to come in and compete for championships. And when you don't compete for championships and it's year five, I don't think anybody's surprised that you're you're on the hot seat. Now, it's not going to be easy for him to save save his job if if that if that means he has to go five and one. I don't know what the, the what the measurement stick is. So uh, I'll just say that it's it, you know Tennessee's okay, but but they they don't have dominating talent that could roll over anyone. I mean, everyone's going to give them a good game. Now they may win them, but I think everyone's going to give them a good game. When you mentioned earlier um, the depth issues on the LSU offensive and defensive line, there have right. been uh, some transfers on the offensive line and defensively they. They're almost uh, a, a group where I see a lot of length and I see a lot of athleticism, but Barton and I even discussed uh, earlier this week on Monday's show, it, they seem to be missing some of the physicality on the interior of the defensive line that maybe we've yeah. become used to seeing. Why do you think that is? Well, I can only recall back, um, and I'm a little surprised Coach, o- oh, Coach Ogeron hasn't done this himself. Um I don't, I'm not pretending to be his personality, but it is kind of obvious that the talented LSU now in the, in the upfront positions, it's not like it was back in 2011, 10, 9, 8, 7. Okay. It's just not. Now I remember back to the story of when Bobby Bowden 
was struggling towards the end of his career at Florida State. And Bobby looked out after a game, and Bobby was bluntly honest towards the end of his career. And he goes, I don't know what to say. He said, we got all the guys we wanted. We must have been wrong about the guys we took. So I'm wondering, you know, Ed has walked into this job, and, you know, Ed coached at USC. He coached at Miami. He coached at LSU when he saw those studs. I'm pretty sure he knows what studs look like. Right. And I'm pretty sure he knows that they are not LSU studs. Just because you put on an LSU uniform doesn't mean you have NFL talent. And I'm pretty sure he knows. I don't know if he has to say it publicly, but privately to his AD. And one of the reasons he might have demanded that buyout, because I see a lot of people conjecturing, like, why would you give him that much money in a buyout? Because he probably told everybody in his interview, we're going to go through some tough times. I know what winning talent looks like, and it ain't here. We keep talking about the quarterback or Cam Cameron back when he was the offensive coordinator or the, the play selection. He goes, forget about all that. We don't have the studs up front that we used to have. And that might be one of the reasons why he got that longer time to rebuild. And I think it's pretty obvious that, that, obvious that whatever was happening in the last three years of the Les Miles recruiting, um, they got a lot of players they wanted. They might have missed on a few, but it looks like the ones that they took are not the players they thought they were. Well, I'm curious uh, your thoughts on this comment that that bubbled out after uh, after the Troy loss. He, Ed Orgeron said that he had instructed Matt Canada to limit the shifts and motions in his offense, at least in the first half, and then the right. second half they switched it back. Does that concern you at all that, that Coach O is, is meddling a little bit in the offense as a as a defensive line coach that was tasked with hiring the best coordinators in the country? Um, to me, that, that was a little bit concerning in terms of what we expected Ed Ogeron to do with this team. Right. I'm going to see Ed Friday. It's one of the questions I did have to try to get some clarity on that. Um, you know, I um, the offensive coordinator works for the head coach. I think it would be... Uh, odd for the head coach to have no input. What is he supposed to do? Just walk around and make sure everybody shows up to the meetings on time. I mean, it. he is the head coach. It doesn't mean he's right in what he says. I'll just give you an example. I, 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 I wonder if Nick Saban had to do it over again. Would he approach the Lane Kiffin ending differently? Okay. We all are, we all are human. We all make mistakes. Maybe Ed made a mistake in asking for left shift in motion. Maybe he had an idea that because of some new players in this game, they needed to simplify. He wanted to show less to Florida, thought he could get by the Troy game, and it didn't work out. Um, happens all the time. Uh, but, I, but it is an interesting angle, and I'm not sure. Um, I'm going to kind of shift a little bit to you to try to make a point. I remember back in the... Alabama, I think it was Georgia game in the SEC championship, the one that Aaron Murray almost came back and won. Where Al- 2012. Alabama was, yeah, they were just running over them. And Todd Grantham uh, was on the sideline, and all the players were looking at him like, give me something. And I, I, and I don't know what he said, but as an announcer, this is what I thought he should have said. Uh, there's no strategy for getting your ass kicked. They're blocking <laughs> you. Yeah. 
There's nothing I can draw up, okay? When they can block you, there's nothing we can do. And to me, all of the talk about having the wrong strategy or the bad play calling or whether they shifted motion not as enough, um, the old LSU team would have lined up and kicked the crap out of Troy. Right, this one, yeah. This, this team couldn't. Yeah, you think, LS, I guess that's that's probably a great point, is, is he just expected to be able to get out there and run off tackle and get – get five yards of pop against Troy, and that's what LSU typically does, but right. that just wasn't happening. Yeah, it, And it wasn't, but it's also a message to your team sometimes, too. Um, I felt for a long time it, it happened a little bit at Georgia, and I think Kirby is correcting that. I think it slid a little bit this way at um, Florida, and Jim McElwain is slowly turning it, and I think it happened maybe the last couple years at Alabama, that you can finesse your way, shift your way, go huddle, no huddle your way, uh, bubble screen your way, screen your way into a championship. And I think the basics of once in a while you look at your offensive line and go, no, no, we're not checking out of this play. Figure yeah. out a way to block the guy in front of you because there's going to come a team when we play somebody like Clemson where we're going to have to block them. We can't trick them. And I'm challenging you to block these guys. And maybe that's the message Ed was trying to give his football team is um, quit depending on the coaching staff to trick you into a positive play. Learn how to block the guy in front of you. So you think that, uh, you mentioned it earlier. You're expecting a, a strong performance from LSU in this spot. This is a huge spot well, for LSU going into the Florida game. Of, of course it is. I mean, the, you know, it makes the Auburn game relevant. It makes a chance to play Alabama relevant. Um it, it pays back Florida for, for the, the beat down they took a year ago when they came into their place and did it. It's, it's a way to, to address the fact that Florida made LSU homecoming day. Um, it, you turn on the tape and go, yeah, Florida's got a 3-0 and record. How do they have a 3-0 and record? Uh, oh, well, you know, what, what happened in their games? Oh, Kentucky didn't cover their receivers twice and gave them two touchdowns. Oh, uh, on the last play of the game, Tennessee let a guy throw a 65-yard pass against them, and Vanderbilt was leading in the second half. Um, we're not playing Tim Tebow, Urban Meyer, uh, Percy Harvin's Florida team, and uh, let, let's see who we are. Let's see what kind of men we are. Yeah, I am expecting them to play better. I don't. That doesn't mean I'm predicting them to win. Right. I'm just saying that uh, Florida's three and zero shouldn't scare LSU if they if it is it is in the LSU players that I've been following the last 11 years in this conference where do you think um obviously you can't make a prediction you will be on the call and if everyone can watch on <laughs> CBS I'm not going up 41 nothing I mean I'm going to make <laughs> games here well I well how do you I, see this uh, game hinging? I felt bad I felt bad for Brad and I a little bit and then I watched the Sunday President's Cup, and I felt worse for Johnny Miller and NBC. So it was, uh, it, it all evens out every once in a while. <laughs> they had nothing to broadcast. At least we had a quarter <laughs> in that game. You had the you you had an, a little bit more in there because the President's Cup was probably actually wrapping up unofficially while the SEC on CBS was on on Saturday as well. <laughs> That's true. Um, how do you see the LSU Florida game hinging though? Like, where are your key matchup points uh, for this game? Um, which, well, as, as we just sure. mentioned, packs a lot of opportunity for LSU. Well, quietly, uh, Florida is looking like you know they're giving up some yards, and um, 
if I'm uh, if I'm LSU, I'm looking at that. You know, other people are moving the ball on them. Why can't we? And so they go into that game from the start. The second half of it is it does look like Jim McElwain is committed to running the ball. And if I'm LSU, if I'm Dave Aranda, their defensive coordinator, who's got a brilliant resume. Uh, I'm challenging my guys to say, listen, it's as simple as this. If they run the ball for more than 150 yards, we're going to lose. So let's get up there. Let's play our techniques. Let's play our run stunts and our defense. And let's see if Felipe Franks uh, is, is, let's say, let's put it this way. Let's give Jim McElroy a reason to question whether Felipe Franks should be the quarterback on the next series because he's not been, you know, he's shown in the past that he's willing to take him out of the game. If they can go three, four series in a row with some punts or turnovers, maybe we get a panic out of Florida. If I'm Florida, I'm saying let's jump on these guys right now. The most physical team's going to win. Mississippi State played more physical than them. Troy uh, ran for over 200 yards. If we beat them down early in our run game, we're going to win this game. With uh, further up in the SEC West, I guess, with Kevin Sumlin, um, yeah. you know, A&M is – this is one of the more intriguing teams in the conference, I think. And a and is sitting there at – I mean, they, they could be 5-0 and if not for disaster against UCLA. But yet, they almost lost to Nickel State. And it took uh, a, a major comeback to beat Arkansas and all this right. stuff. But So I guess, I don't know that I think they're a threat against Alabama. But I'm curious just how you assess this team right now in terms of a factor in the West and and the developments under Kellen Mond at quarterback and just where you, where this yeah. team is in their development right now. When you know, uh, Kellen Mann was was so early in his career when when we saw the uh, you know when I watched the game, uh, what UCLA game, um, it was like you know we'd heard a lot that he was in the battle, and then when we watched him play, it was like oh you know, yeah. it's, but that's that's really a liability. But he's got a lot of talent, and he does give them another weapon in their running game. I, you know, I think this I, I don't I look at this game and I look at like. Who, who's going to beat? Who can play with Alabama? First of all, you have to be able to score some points. And I think with Williams and, and uh, Kirk and maybe that home field, uh, John Chavis, maybe you know he throws up a, a game plan. They've had four recruiting classes. Um, Alabama hasn't made a mistake this year. They haven't had a turnover, okay? So, um, or what is it, eight and 12 quarters? They haven't had a turnover or eight something games. like that? Yeah, it's eight, an, games. eight, yeah, eight games. Yeah, eight games. It's more it's 32 quarters, pardon me. So, you know, I'm looking at, you know, if if they don't have any problems with A&M on the road, boy, obviously it's going to be tough for Arkansas and Tennessee. And then LSU doesn't look like they have enough. It looks to me like a, you know, three-team race, Auburn, Georgia, and Alabama. Is this I, I, looking back? I mean, you've been around this league for a long time. I mean, this weekend we had a forty-one nothing win, a sixty-six to three win, a forty-nine to ten win. Right? Is is this one of the more unbalanced seasons you can remember in the SEC? Because as you mentioned, it really seems like it's three really good teams, everybody else, and everyone else at times can look kind of average. I mean, what? what yeah. Well, less than average, to be truthful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, um, listen, Kentucky almost lost to Eastern Michigan uh, this week, and they got outgained in that game. Eastern Michigan, I mean, 
you're picking over a lot of players before Eastern Michigan before they go to Eastern Michigan, uh, and I don't, you know they what they had one time was had losing seasons three or four in a row, so um, where they didn't win a game. Um, I I thought Kentucky would manhandle them. They got outrushed in that game. I think they ran for less than sixty yards in that game. So that wasn't a finesse game. That was Eastern Michigan handling Kentucky. You're right. Purdue manhandles Missouri. Arkansas, you know, it at SEC Media Days, um, I warned the conference that that the last two or three or four years of the whole conference trying to figure out a way to beat Alabama, and it appeared that most of the coaching staffs felt that the way to do it was to emulate how Auburn and Texas A&M played with mobile quarterbacks, spreading them out, trying to do multiple plays, putting a lot of, um, a lot on the table of your quarterback, both as a running or passer, making it more of a finesse game. I warned them that it had weakened the conference that maybe they could catch Alabama down. But what happens is their up and down cycles of their own team was going to frustrate them and their fans. That the fundamentals in the league, top to bottom, are not as good as it was five years ago. And uh, when you put that much emphasis on your quarterback and that much emphasis on RPOs and trickery and finesse, um, you lose the basics of what makes you a solid football team that can play at a high level every week. And I think uh, I, 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 particularly chose this phrase to make with a, for a little bit of a shock value that Johnny Manziel, the footprint of Johnny Manziel was a catastrophic success for the SEC <laughs> because so many teams tried to find their Johnny Manziel. And what happens is when he has an average day or an off day or he gets nicked or he gets worn out, when you're running your whole offense, running and passing game through the quarterback, you're putting a lot on that guy in this league where you're facing NFL-type uh, athletes on the other side of the ball. Auburn's gotten uh, Jarrett Stidham now yep. got about five, yep. five games under his belt. Do you think that Jarrett Stidham can, uh, can be a Johnny Manziel or a Crimson Tide killer at the, by the end of the season? Because this is two straight no. weeks of – uh, that Auburn offense clicking and really finding uh, the the explosion plays that I think we're missing a lot earlier in the season. Yeah, and, I, and, I and I'm not trying to be picky or smart or anything, and I, I actually think he's being the opposite of Johnny Manziel. The yeah. object for um, 50 years in football was not to get your quarterback hit, okay? Not to do what Trevor Knight and Josh Dobbs did where they took, you know, 35 passes and 20 runs where they got hit 40 times a game over 10 games and it wore them down. I think what Auburn is doing this year is exactly what you have to do to beat Alabama. You have to have efficient, high-level quarterback play and be able to run the ball enough that force Alabama to load the box a little bit and so you can throw the ball to the outside. Just That's the formula. And what Auburn also brings is enough tonnage and athletes on defense to match up with Alabama. And that's what LSU used to be able to do. Um, and that's what Clemson did. We all talk about Sean Watson. He's a great player. 
But look at that offense and defensive line that Clemson had. They had 17 guys drafted. They had mismatches at wide receiver that broke down that one-on-one coverage. That's what Auburn should be trying to bring to the, into the table to beat Alabama. And I do think they've been a, uh, a, a great coaching job by Gus Malzahn. He might be doing the best coaching job in this conference as he's been able to retool his offense to fit what Jared Stidham can do as a quarterback. And it's a whole different offense, and it looks like they're getting better. So you think no chance they have any slip-ups against Ole Miss and it sets up that uh, Auburn-LSU game? They they should not lose to Ole Miss. They have too many big, strong football players to lose to Ole Miss. And I'd I'd be shocked. You know, Shea Patterson is the perfect example of a guy who's being asked to do too much. It's impossible. You can't do that every week. Ask Josh Rosen at UCLA. You can't play to that, that level every week. There's too many good players out there now. Oh, Ole Miss is a perfect example of what you were just talking about because you look up and they've got all these four stars at receiver right. and all these four stars at, at offensive line. They have Shea Patterson and Alabama just ran right through over them and and pummeled them. Yeah. Uh, and if you asked <laughs> if you asked I asked Kirby Smart, I said Kirby, I'm really interested of why you're building the team the way you are. I said, you know the the conventional thought was that what gave you trouble as a defensive coordinator was the wide open attack and the the shotgun mobile quarterback why are you going the opposite way you're you're running the ball you're getting big linemen you're getting tailbacks you're you're you know finding a quarterback who manages the game and throws 10 12 15 times a game and he goes if you can't run the ball on offense You'll never be able to defend the run with your defense. Mm. It's an overall program that your commitment to run gives you a commitment to stop the run. And that's what Ole Miss can't do. Yeah, they got a couple wins. I'll, I'll give them credit for that. Bo Wallace had a great fourth quarter. They had a ton of talent over there at Ole Miss, you know, and they caught Alabama at a good time. Then the next time Alabama turned it over five times and, they, you know, it, it worked again, and everybody said, "Aha! Here's how you beat Alabama." Well, you better be good enough up front to do that, because if they can run over you, they'll just run right over you. Mm. He is Gary Danielson. Make sure that you tune in to the SEC on CBS Game of the Week. Brad Nessler, Gary, and Allie LaForce, of course, on the call on CBS on CBSSports.com and CBS Mobile Devices. Gary, thank you so much. We'll be watching. All right, thank you guys. Barton. Tell me about that MeUndies life. How's that MeUndies life treating you? Yo, man, this is the this is the this is the best perk of a podcast I could have ever asked for. I love my MeUndies. My wife loves my MeUndies. I have found myself to be a legitimate believer in my new draws. My draws, the great <laughs> a great sleep in draws, and uh, and this is something where. Because you are a loyal listener to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast, uh, you can get 20% off free shipping and their 100% satisfaction guarantee to get the best and softest underwear you will ever own. Here's how you do it. Go to MeUndies.com slash CFB. That's MeUndies.com slash CFB. MeUndies knows what the best college football podcast around is. It is the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast, and that's why we... These new believers of the MeUndies movement want to share this with you. 20% off, free shipping, 100% satisfaction guarantee. This is a no-brainer. 
Go to MeUndies.com slash CFB. That's MeUndies.com slash CFB. This is a limited time offer, so what are you waiting for? Start wearing the best underwear of your life. Go to MeUndies.com slash CFB right now. And now, pleasure to, pleasure to welcome back to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast, Danny Cannell. Uh, Danny this is uh, this is a big week for you, and I want to I want to start before we jump into Florida State Miami. I want to ask since we referenced it in our conversation last week, how did that regular hit with Jimbo Fisher go uh, after the loss to NC State? <laughs> it was about as, as, as to be expected. He actually he was pretty good about it, and I mean, of course, I had to ask him because I'd be getting calls on my radio show every single day. It seems like from Florida uh, State fans are saying, "When are you going to fire Rick Trickett, their offensive line coach?" So you get a little bit kind of you have to ask it, so it's a little bit awkward. And I don't want to piss him off, but he was pretty cool about it. He's like, "Look, it's part of the business, you know. If you're one and two and you barely beat Wake, it kind of comes with the territory." He said, "But that was you know he gave you the coach answers." So it, it went, I would say it went better than expected. But, I mean, if I well, trust me, if you thought I was cheering for Florida State versus Alabama, you should have seen me during Wake Forest. Because if they would have lost that game, <laughs> that would have been an absolute nightmare. And it looked like it for a long time until that last play that they were you know, going to come up short. It was uh, a little bit dicey there. What do you think you're going to see from Florida State this week? Uh, this is, uh, so you've, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark Richt, the offensive coordinator, when you were a starter? Yes, correct. He recruited me out of high school. And I really just, I, I you know, had a good rapport with him. I liked his style of coaching. So he was the reason I chose Florida State. And then he was with me all four years. So his first, his first year, my freshman year, he was the offensive coordinator, or excuse me, just the quarterback coach. And then after my sophomore year, when we won the national championship, Brad Scott left for South Carolina and Mark Rick took over the, the head job. So, so yeah, even Mark and I didn't realize that he kind of would tell us about his history at Miami and, you know, how he had played down there. And we were like, yeah, whatever. We didn't really pay attention to it. But then seeing him go back, like, it's kind of cool to see him go back to where he went to college and you see the picture, which was actually in our, like, quarterback meeting room. The picture of him and Bernie Kozar and Jim Kelly, it's, it's a pretty funny picture. And he would always tell us, be like, well, I would have played anywhere in the country, but I had to go QBU with all these guys that were first-round picks. You know, he would always tell us that. And we'd be like, yeah, whatever, you're probably like a walk-on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, heading into this game, and, and I actually kind of wrote this yesterday. I'm, I'm curious your reaction to this, agree, disagree. I think that given the trajectory of Miami under your boy Mark Rick and – and given the way they're recruiting right now at Miami, right now fourth in the country in 2018, a win here at Florida State by Miami, to Don't me, <laughs> to me, there's a shift back? in the power. Not not back. I'm just saying in the state of Florida, is is, is this could this symbolize a shift in the power balance in the state? Because Florida State's dominated it ever since Jimbo Fisher's taken over. And right now, Miami's loaded with good sophomores. They play in a bunch of true freshmen. They got another good recruiting class coming. They've got quarterback play that seems to be solid. I'm curious your take on whether or not Miami can can take back the state, at least a chunk of it, with a win, or whether they got a lot more uh, work to do to, to, to get it back just in one win. So here's what I would say. And I, 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 don't think it's, I don't think it would be a shift of power, but I think it could be a balance of power. 
Like I and I think that would be a good thing. Like it's, as much as I'm a Florida State guy through and through, you know, I I root for Miami to be good. Like I want that game to mean something where it's not at three thirty. Uh, you know, like I want to see it yeah. prime time. I want to see game day there. I want to see it come down to a field goal where I'm kind of sweating it out, saying I can't. I hope this isn't another wide right. I want to see this matchup be one of the premier matchups of college football. So I think I wouldn't say it would be a shift to power because Jimbo has built something that has a lot of depth to it. Like I know Miami's recruiting better, but Jimbo and you guys are well aware of this. His recruiting classes are just as good as anybody's, and they have that kind of cycle coming through. I think there would absolutely be some panic and some Florida State fans that would say, oh, my gosh, we're one and three, and now we lost to Miami. You know, do you think the calls to fire Rick Trickett before were bad? Wait till you know, if they get you know, beat up against Miami's defensive front, they'll only get louder and only get worse. Um, but, yeah, I think I, I, I do think, I mean, I, Miami's favorite in the game, they've looked better. And it's, it's, I think the bigger kind of the more interesting storyline, though, is what happens because Miami, I think most people, I, myself included, I think will pick Miami to win. But what if they don't? <laughs> you know, like then, then it gets really interesting of, wait, I thought they were back, and here we are again losing to a Florida State team that looks very beatable this season and you couldn't get it done this year. Like what does that mean? What, is, what type of setback is that for the Hurricanes? But on the flip side of that, though, like – Really, what excuse does Florida State have to to lose this game other than the quarterback position? I know that's a big one, but it's not like they've got a rash well, of injuries everywhere line, else. The, the offensive line, the offensive line issue is very real. I mean, watching that game, and it wasn't so because after you watched Alabama, you watched him get Alabama, and you watched you know John Derrick Francois get knocked out, and then you watch him against NC State, and they're getting you know James Blackman's getting beat up a little bit. You're seeing poor protection. I kept saying, I kept thinking to myself. Well, you get two really, really good defenses with some NFL talent on that side of the ball. You know, you can kind of excuse it and say, all right, it's, it's, it's understandable. But against Wake, when you see, like, your left tackles whiffing on dudes and they have to, you know, they're trying to call three-step drops to protect the offensive line and, and Blackman's getting hit, like, before he can even set up, like, there's a problem on the offensive line. And I don't know. Like, I, I don't think it's coaching necessarily. I think maybe it's, they've missed on a couple guys and they're just younger and they're trying to figure it out, but it is a serious issue. Like, I, don't, I think it is time to look at it and say, this could be a bigger problem. And if, if they don't get it turned out, this is going to be a year for Florida State where it's, you're staring eight and four right in the face and it could be ugly. Wow. Eight and, I'm going, by the way, I'm going to the Florida I mean, State. You know? That, that's, yeah. I'm going I mean, to Florida pro- State. That's, le- that's likely at this point, right? I mean, eight and four seems. Yeah, I think so. Now, the- now Jimbo's been Jimbo's done. I mean, this this will probably be one of his biggest challenges as a coach. It'll be like, hey, how do you do with a team that was picked to win the ACC for a lot of people? You know, when some people pick Clemson, but this was kind of Florida State's turn to kind of take their turn at the wheel. And then you start off, and the, even the loss to Bama, I think everybody was okay with. But then you lose your quarterback. But more importantly, like, what is the locker room response? Like, how does he keep a team invested and kind of competing and keep that competitive edge when they're thinking, what's there really to play for? Like, you can kind of – and I asked him that. I said, what do you sell them on? And he kind of was like, well, I have to take it week by week. He said, because if you still say – because I I think there's going to be a two-loss team in the playoffs. So I, I pitched Jimbo that question. I'm like, do you try to tell your team, hey, even with two losses, you can still make the playoffs? And he was like, I can't because – and he, kind of, he didn't say this, but he was like, what happens if you lose again? <laughs> you know, yeah. then what do you tell your team? So he was like, I only tell the team 
to take it one week at a time. That's all we can handle is one week at a time. That's all we can focus on. And uh, that's, that's, that's kind of his approach, which is a smart approach because if you do lose, then you are knocked out of the playoff from ACC hunt. Where do you go from there? So that's, that's I think, Jimbo. That's why I think it's going to be very challenging for him is to keep this team invested emotionally and going after it. Especially when guys start thinking about the NFL, they start thinking about shutting it down and just getting ready for the draft. It's a reality of coaching in 2017 at a major program when you've got guys that are as talented as he has. Georgia clicking on every single cylinder in the engine right now. Um, everything seems to be working for the Bulldogs. They've got an early, they've got a nooner, an early kick at Vanderbilt. Uh, do, are you looking at the Bulldogs here? Is this a game where you're tuned in to see how they respond, or is this a game where you're so confident in Georgia that you'll just keep an eye on the score tracker and maybe tune in if things get dicey in the third quarter? You know what I'm looking at? I'm hoping Kirby Smart doesn't screw this up and start Jacob Eason. <laughs> I want to see what he does with the quarterback because I think uh, I think I told you guys this last week. I think Jake yeah. Brom is the guy. Like he's he's clearly taking the helm, and I know he. They haven't asked him to do too much yet. I mean, he only threw for 84 yards. That's all they needed against Tennessee. But he just has that it factor, and the team has all this momentum running. What? Why would you mess with that by opening it up? And I, I feel like Kirby Smart is overthinking this a little bit because I think he's worried about keeping Jacob Eason happy. And I, I understand that to some point, some, to some extent. But you don't want to jeopardize what you've got going with Fromm. And if you kind of mess with that formula, I, I just I'm concerned about it. So I think that's kind of my my thing. Why I would tune into that game more than any is to kind of see if Eason plays. Does he roll him in? Does he try to get him work still? And how much does that mess with what they have going? Because, with, you know, it, before it was they have Sonny Michelle and Nick Chubb. Now you throw in another running back to that equation and DeAndre Swift. They have depth at the backfield, the way their defense is playing. Like they're separating themselves as the best team in the SEC East. Why mess with it? And I, I think this will be the one of the reasons I want to really watch close to this game is to see how they stack up against Alabama. Like we know what Alabama did against Vanderbilt completely dominating that game. And I don't think Georgia will go into Nashville and have that type of performance. But if it's close in the fourth quarter, you got to be thinking, man, does anybody have a chance against Bama? And that might be the answer. There's just no, nobody does. But if Georgia can handle their business and, you know, win comfortably and have a dominant win, then that conversation becomes a lot more interesting is that, hey, maybe Georgia is the team that can give Bama a run for its money in the SEC championship game. I want to go back to the quarterback situation. Uh, you having played quarterback at a high level, um, know the psychology of the position. I want to. I want you to put yourself in Jacob Easton's shoes right now. You've <laughs> been a true freshman starter and high expectations. You got an NFL arm, and you look like you're about to lose your job due to injury to the true freshman. What What do you do now? I feel like you're a little bit of an old school guy, and and you're about competition, all that stuff. But is if you're Jacob Beeson, are you starting to give you know call your high school head coach and be like, hey, start sending some feelers out there. I need to find a new home. What what? How do you handle the cards you've now been dealt? So I think it's going to be really challenging for him. And as a young quarterback, I mean, I think every quarterback has been through it, where you've been benched, where you've been hurt, where you've had adversity, right? And I think this is where. For Jacob Easton, he's got to rely on his, whatever his 
like team or his his support group, whether it's his parents, his family, uh, if he has a quarterback coach, somebody, that's where you have to lean on them. And that's where I really hope he has good advice coming from. And so for me, it was my dad. Like, that's always who I had. And I was very blessed with a dad who didn't, you know, who always was supportive. You know, but, but more importantly, like my dad told me to fight it out. That, hey, you know, be ready. And I think that's where his support group, and this is where I hope that Kirby Smart pulls him aside. And this is where you kind of have to really, I mean, it's a gut check time, so I'm sure it's a really tough time for Jacob Eason. But you have to remember it's football. And there's still a lot of football left to be played. And as good as Jake Tom has played, there's a couple things that could happen. One, he could make some freshman mistakes and he could play poorly and you could be thrust in there. So you better be ready to play. The other thing is, it's the SEC. What if Jake Tom gets hit, lands on his shoulder, and he's out? You have to be ready to go. So that's where I would kind of encourage him is to say, stay mentally invested. Make sure you're getting your work to practice. Don't quit on, you know, don't. Don't go into a shell and, you know, just kind of quit on the team, just kind of mope around, but stay invested. Be a leader. You don't have to be the starter to be a leader. Be, be an encourager to Jake Fromm. Like, be a good teammate and see what happens. And then at the end of the year, I think it's when you reevaluate things. And not, you know, I got benched. It was funny. The Miami game, my junior year, was the first time I played at Miami in the Orange Bowl. I threw three picks and I got benched. And I didn't know what was going to happen that week. I didn't know if I was going to see the starting job again. And my dad was like, you know what? He's like, just hang in there. He's like, give it your best at practice. He's like, tough it out. He's like, if they bench you, we'll deal with it after the season, but you're not going to quit on them. You know, and that's kind of like, I, I tell that to my daughters, whether it's a little league softball or whatever it is, I would never let somebody quit in the middle of the season or transfer. I guess is the real world situation we're dealing with now when guys transfer because they're not playing. I would say let the season play out because you could be part of something really special. Like you could yeah. be part of a national championship team and who knows, maybe you don't get to play until the fourth quarter of the national championship game, but that would make it worth it. And even if you don't you still get a ring, still get to have experiences and then you can transfer somewhere the next year. So I think it's going to be too hard for Jacob Eason, but you know, that would be my kind of advice to him. That's my soapbox. I want to go, I'll go to another, <laughs> another situ- similar situation. And this is not, not an in-season move necessarily, but like if if you're Hunter Johnson at Clemson, and you know right now uh, Kelly Bryant is is balling and looks like he's going to be balling next year too, uh, and you've got Trevor Lawrence coming in behind you that everyone's calling the next Peyton Manning. Uh, are you now as as a true freshman at Clemson who enrolled early with the expectation of winning the job after the season's over? Are you now looking to transfer? I think it depends on the player, and that's for one of the things that bothers me with younger players today is I feel like too many guys are just focused on one goal, and that's getting to the NFL. Like, it's not even I just want to play college football. It's where can I play where I can get to the NFL. And that's where I don't know where Hunter Johnson's mindset is. If he just wants to play college football and just wants to have fun, then find somewhere else to go because you might be waiting there. But, again, I would say wait out this season how it goes might be part of a national championship team at Clemson but wait to see how it goes wait to see if Kelly Bryant stays healthy and then kind of reevaluate things the other thing I think people sometimes forget and there's examples both ways so I totally understand that but look at the number two overall pick in this year's draft it was Mitch Trubisky from North Carolina and he didn't get to play for four years he sat a redshirted waited played one season as a redshirt junior and then he got discovered. You only need to, you know, you only need to lay down 13 games on tape. We've seen that. 
Uh, we've seen other guys. Brad Johnson, who was a long time ago at Florida State, was backing up Casey Weldon. Had less than, you know, he had probably a handful of starts. And he got discovered. If you're good enough to play in the NFL, you'll get discovered. You don't have to be a multi-year starter to do that. But it kind of it depends on every individual's priorities. Like, what do you want to do? Do you want to play at a place like Clemson? Or do you want to just go play where you can be the starter? Because you're, all, you're going to have to compete at some point, no matter where you go. Um, so just make sure that you're ready for that competition. Because nowhere is going to hand you a starting job. And if they do, you bet there is a lie. Like, you're going to have to keep that job. Yeah. And you have to perform to do it. So I'd be very leery of coaches guaranteeing you a spot just to get you the transfer. He is Danny Cannell. CBS Sports Digital, college football analyst. Danny, thank you so much. We know you got to go. Um, we will link up again next Wednesday. Appreciate it, man. You got it, man. You guys have a great weekend. I'm going to make you break it down. We'll get into specifics. Game breakdown. Specifics. Game breakdown. If they played on a neutral field, you would take them. Breaking down the game. All right, before we get out of here, our thanks once again to Gary Danielson and Danny Cannell. Uh, just we've got too much content. This is uh, a week a week six that is absolutely loaded with conference games that as these division races and as these conference races are starting to unfold, you know, we were watching that. We were watching some of these contenders go on the road and against familiar opponents. Um, the, the wrinkles to these matchups are fascinating. And, and that's why, while we've enjoyed, uh, we d- enjoyed into the going in depth, on some of the hottest topics of the week, Barton, why aren't we talking about some of these other games? Yeah, this is, um, you know, sometimes I think we get caught up in, in the drama of like the Butch quarterback Jones. controversy yeah. or Butch Jones <laughs> in the hot seat, and we miss just like the actual football, like, legit football <laughs> games that are going on. So, I, yeah, let's get into a couple of these really good football games that may be worth are getting overshadowed by by the soap operas elsewhere. Um, and, of course, you know, a lot of these games will end up just getting some sort of discussion, but uh, we got to talk some some actual capital F football. And I'm going to start with the Saturday night game. And for the caliber and the spotlight that we've had for the Saturday night games in recent weeks, you know, that would include uh, Clemson going to play at Virginia Tech and her Sandman jumping around. That would include Penn State going to Iowa uh, the week before, I think, might have been the Clemson-Louisville game. But, man, Michigan-Michigan State, rivalry game, under the lights in the big house, feels like this one's flying below the radar. And given the outcomes from some of these uh, games in recent years, you know, remember the absolutely ridiculous blocked punt return touchdown from a few years ago? Michigan State, 3-1, and one, Coming off a win against Iowa, I I feel like this game's going to end up being uh, close, but I don't know why. I don't know necessarily if it's going to be exciting. Why aren't we talking about this game? Yeah, I, well, I think Michigan State, if not for last year and and just their major issues that they had, I think that this would be a game with a lot higher expectations. But right now, I think everyone's just assuming, all right, well, Michigan State is an average team with an average offense and this is going to be uh the beginning of their uh average run and i don't know that that's true necessarily like i think michigan is pretty average on offense 
and they're really good on defense. But this is one of those games, just like, you know, last year when Michigan went to Iowa at night, um, just like when Penn State went to Iowa uh, two weeks ago, um, where, you know, Michigan State just sort of plays teams tough, especially a rivalry game like this. Mark D'Antonio was was talking in, in his presser about how he is not underplaying the rivalry aspect of this game. He believes in that, and, and this is what makes college football great. And, and those, those sort of statements make me bullish on the underdogs in these sort of spots. Um, so I, I actually think we don't know a lot about Michigan either, given that the one team that they had an impressive win over was Florida, who is clearly not a very good football team. They haven't blown out anyone else, including Cincinnati, Purdue, um, who the, who they played somebody else that was just a, a very Air Force middling win. Air Force, yeah. Air so, Force was in that game until the very end. There was yeah. like a late Karan Higdon. Uh, they were burning the clock, and Karan Higdon like sprung, spun out of a a weak tackle attempt for a runaway touchdown, which was the only offensive touchdown of the game. So I I think this is going to be a battle, and I don't you know maybe we'll. We'll save any picks for tomorrow and, and, and get into the game breakdown. But Michigan State, to me, despite that Notre Dame loss, looks like they're built like a Michigan State team should be. I mean, they got a great run game. Um, they've got a pretty physical offensive line. Defensively, they've been solid throughout so far. Um, I just think this game is going to be a – I think this is going to be a battle. I think Michigan State's going to take it to Michigan and, and – and, um, and really challenge them. So I think this is going to be a fun matchup. And I, 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 I do think this one is getting overlooked. And I guess ABC's showing it prime time, so clearly they think it'll be a, a matchup as well. But I, I, I kind of agree with them. Yeah, this is – and uh, I think where it's going to be a rainy in Ann Arbor, sloppy. Oh, yeah. oh my goodness, boy. Um, hey, all right, so uh, Michigan State – is relying very heavily on the quarterback position for its run game. Do you think Michigan State will be able to run the ball against Michigan? That's kind of where this game comes down to, to me. They better. Uh, because I I don't know. The problem is I don't think that they can throw the ball really effectively on Michigan. So I think that they've got an LJ Scott, who I think is one of the more underappreciated backs in the country, with Brian Lewerke showing off some athleticism. Uh, I do think that this is a team that's going to be committed enough to the run. I think that they're going to be spending all week in practice with the, the chip on their shoulder talk with the, no one's giving us a chance talk with the, you guys better show up and prove how tough you are that. I think that this is, this is the type of program that embraces these challenges and the run game is where you prove whether or not you're up to the task. And so I I think that they, yeah, to me, I think that's, that is going to be the key. And I think Michigan State's going to do enough to, to possess the football, get some first downs, and make this game, shorten the game, and make it close. And so um, I kind of, yeah, I'm kind of bullish on this on this spot here for Michigan State. And uh, and I think Michigan, again, because they we don't really know how good they are. And, and this is another opportunity to, to reveal that. TCU hosting West Virginia, biggest game in the Big 12 this week. Um, I... It's not getting a lot of attention, and I'm, I'm going to come out here and say it. I think 
that there are a lot of people in college football who haven't gotten a uh, haven't gotten some enough good eyes on West Virginia. I think they've flown way below the radar since that first game against Virginia Tech on Sunday night. And even then, no one really watched the end of that game because everybody was watching Josh Rosen come back against Texas A and M. Yeah, this is going to be another um, potential opportunity for the Big 12 to to cut the legs out from under its, itself. I mean, West Virginia's – I mean, Will Greer is is big-time good. I think he's legit. And and that passing game is going to be uh, – look, TCU handled uh, Oklahoma State's pass game, uh, but – and they made them drive the football, and they, they limited the big plays with the exception of that 186-yarder. Uh, West Virginia could do that too. I mean, they could they could they can extend the ball down the field, but they've got a, a powerful run game. And Justin Crawford, I like this this game. This is one of my most the games I'm most excited to watch. Um, I think this these are both Big Twelve championship contenders here. Are you uh, where are you on that? West Virginia makes me mad. West Virginia makes me very mad because I think Crawford is a great running back. And there are times where I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm just screaming, run the dang ball. You know? Yeah. Like, West, like, yes, all right, you do have good wide receivers, but I just feel like there so, have been times uh, – like, it was – the Kansas game drove me crazy. They've been off since the Kansas game. But watching that Kansas game drove me a little bit crazy because they had uh, – all they had to do was just keep running the ball. Those no answers. Are we one week removed from Kansas or two weeks removed from Kansas? They were off, yeah, they were off last weekend, so we're two okay. weeks removed from Kansas. I mean, the only other like competitive they played ECU, they played like what Delaware State, Dakota State. Um, yeah, well, you got to just go back to that Virginia Tech game. That's really all we know about West Virginia. In in that that was a well played game. And both teams looked like they were really good football teams. But if That's they can the run the ball, like if they run the ball here, in if they if they commit to running the ball and they can do it successfully against TCU, then I think it gives them a better chance than letting Will Greer try and take shots against TCU's secondary. Yeah, yeah. I well, I mean, they're going to need to be balanced. Yeah, they're they're absolutely really, for sure. I think you have to be balanced against TCU, and. Um, you know, I think that on the flip side, defensively, you know, they they had they replaced a lot. They're going to be coming in here with now what four games under their belts of experience and getting this new defense to gel. Um, I, I I think that TCU we've talked about in the past. This is a this is a defense that causes turnovers, and TCU's got a quarterback that's got some turnover inclinations. Um, that's something to watch here is, is how much how much can West Virginia turn TCU over? Because I think if they can get a couple, if they can steal a ball or two, um, that, that's going to make this a really tricky situation for TCU. Right, um, are you going to make this one of your locks? I, I actually really like this slate. Like I've got a, I got a lot of games I'm toying with. I don't know yet, but I, I am absolutely considering it. I'm not and- considering it. I am not. You're not going to have me sweating a two-touchdown spread with Will Greer and Kenny Hill on the field. No, sir. Dude, it's going to be um, – I think this is going to be one of the better played games of the weekend. Um, I could see that for sure. All right, well, here's let's, uh, one more game that I feel like uh, is really, really getting overlooked. 
Um, Stanford at Utah. Stanford, five-and-a-half-point road favorite. Bruh. Dangerous spot. Bruh. Give me Utah straight up. (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be maybe, let's see, might be the toughest run defense Stanford's had to face. Agree. With Utah. And and Utah at night in Salt Lake City, a place going to be rocking. There's not an alcoholic beverage or a caffeinated beverage in sight, but those people <laughs> are, are getting wild out there. And so it's going to, it's a, it's, it's a tricky atmosphere to play in. KJ Costello is the new quarterback for Stanford. I think he is the answer for them in terms of that position. He's now got two weeks under his belt to get settled and get comfortable. Um, but, man, that offensive line has opened up some holes for Bryce Love, and all he needs is a sliver. Um, and I, I, on the other side, I love Tyler Huntley, at quarterback for Utah. I think that he gives them a lot of dynamic playmaking ability. This game is just – this game is going to be, awesome. I think, really fun to watch. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to say Stanford is going to continue to develop and, and they're going to finish like 10-2 and, and, and blow out somebody in, uh, you know, in the Rose Bowl or something. Um, and – this is a this is a big test to see if they can continue that progression, uh, because this is probably Stanford's schedule. I'm pulling it up real quick. Stanford's schedule. This might be the toughest. Honestly, this might be the toughest remaining game. At I mean, not not to say that there's not other challenges. At which Washington State is going to be tough. Notre Dame in November is going to be tough. Catching given a night game in Salt Lake City. Against a tough physical Utah defense, this is going to be one of their biggest tests remaining. Oh, the must! It's just it, it's going to get so rowdy in there. I think I think that's going to be a game. Stanford's been winning a lot of games by putting fifty on the scoreboard. They got to remember how to win twenty three twenty one. Yeah, that's yeah. This is a this is a different team than we're used to seeing with all these high scoring games. And I also wondered, man, if Bryce Love. They're, they're leaning so much on him. If he takes one hit to the sternum and, and rolls one ankle, pulls one hamstring, what that does to this offense. Uh, but right now, I, I still kind of feel like Stanford is a team that's that's developing the right way. But I'm not ready to make my pick on that one. That one, I'll have to mull that one over. you got to meditate on that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was my favorite line from Monday's show. Oh, I, I need to meditate on that one. I <laughs> just imagined you going into your chamber – with all your all your tape and all your notes and just sitting quietly mulling your I can't decision. Even, I can't even sleep on games anymore because I got this I got this screaming two week old baby that's uh that's limiting my ability to sleep on games. So now I have to find my, my, my sound controlled chamber and just and just meditate. <laughs> you so, yeah. Barton actually does go into a sensory deprivation chamber for thirty minutes to uh to make his picks <laughs> emerge. Yeah. All right, yeah. well, our picks, you of course, you can get on tomorrow's show, so make sure you subscribe to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast because subscribers get them first. Barton, thank you very much. Talk tomorrow.